Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Prinandar, Kloysholagathli, good afternoon and welcome to Hay and to the latest in the Cambridge, Cambridge University series. Elizabeth Drayson specialises in medieval and early modern Spanish literature and cultural history with a particular interest in the Arabic, Jewish and Christian cultures of medieval and golden age Spain. She's written several books, including her latest, The Moor's Last Stand, How Seven Centuries of Muslim Rule in Spain Came to an End. She will be signing copies in the book tent afterwards. Please do give Elizabeth Drayson a warm hey welcome. Well, I'm delighted to be here today to talk to you about my new book. The Moor's Last Stand tells the story of the life and times of a Muslim sultan who ruled in the Kingdom of Granada in southern Spain in the late Middle Ages, whose life is distant from us, yet also deeply resonant with some of our own contemporary concerns. And I became interested in him because so little had been written about a man who began as an inexperienced youth and rose to become a powerful ruler at a crossroads in Spanish history. He was the fascinating, paradoxical figure at the heart of a major regime change, and his ambiguous actions and motives have turned his life into legend. This sultan had reigned for almost a decade by the momentous year of 1492, a year when three events took place which had far-reaching repercussions on Spanish, European, and world history. One major watershed happened in August 1492, when Christopher Columbus set sail from Palos de la Frontera near Huelva on his first voyage of discovery of the Americas. A second had taken place earlier in the year, in April, when an edict had been issued ordering the expulsion of all Jews from the kingdoms of Spain by the end of July, never to return. But the first great event of the year occurred on the 2nd of January in the city of Granada. Let me set the scene with a reading from the opening chapter of my book. A king sits motionless astride his jet-black horse and waits. His black velvet robes flutter slightly in the cold breeze of an early January day, and his horse paws the muddy ground impatiently. The man's bearded face betrays profound grief, though his bearing is dignified and his sorrow is echoed in the faces of the handful of retainers watching on foot behind him. Another king and his queen are mounted face to face with him, their lavish clothes embroidered in red and gold, their richly caparisoned horses and vast host of attendants striking a sharp contrast with his modest, sober attire and retinue. There is utter silence. <coughs> Taking one foot from the stirrup, the king bows his head slowly, then leans down to hand the bunch of magnificent keys he's holding to a page, who takes them and gives them ceremoniously to the king dressed in red. He, in turn, bows solemnly and presents the keys to the queen. On seeing the joy in their faces, the vanquished king and his followers are unable to hide their pain and sadness, and the silence is broken by a sound of weeping, as he turns his back on the city of Granada and leaves it for the last time. The monarch dressed in black, 
is Abu Abdullah Muhammad ben Ali, or Muhammad XI, known to the Christians as Boabdil, because they couldn't actually pronounce his name correctly. And he was the last Moorish Sultan of Granada and head of the Nazareth dynasty of Muslim rulers in Spain. And here we have a contemporary portrait of Boabdil. His dramatic act of handing over the keys of the city of Granada to the Christian monarchs King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella marked a crucial moment in a centuries-old clash between two great religions and cultures. It symbolised the epoch-changing transition of the Kingdom of Granada from an Islamic state to a Christian territory, a moment which set Spain on a course to become the greatest power in early modern Europe. Today I'm going to talk, first of all, um, about the historical background to Boabdil's reign, and then give you an outline of his life, tell you how his legend grew, and what his story means to us now. To understand this clash between the Christians and Muslims of medieval Spain, and make sense of Boabdil's life, we need to see it in its cultural and historical context. We need to go back in time, as far as the 8th century, to discover how Islam began in Spain and how it managed to survive there when it seemed to be condemned to obliteration by the rising power of a Christian reconquest whose roots lay in the Muslim invasion of Visigothic Spain. Boabdil's fateful role as the king who lost the last Islamic kingdom in the Iberian Peninsula has a striking parallel with the situation of Roderick, the last king of the Spanish Visigoths, who ruled for just two years and lost his own Christian kingdom to Islamic invaders when his army was defeated by a Moorish raiding party in July 711 at the Battle of Guadalete in southern Andalusia. The reigns of Roderick and Boabdil marked the beginning and end of Islamic rule in Spain. Um, and this was how a 17th century engraver imagined Roderick. Like Boabdil, Roderick's life became part of fiction and myth. He was the king on whose watch the Iberian Peninsula was conquered by Arab and Berber tribes from North Africa. And that conquest gave rise to the founding story of the Spanish people, in which Roderick's alleged love affair with the beautiful woman known as La Carva, the whore, was blamed for the Muslim invasion, which established a powerful Arab presence in Spain for nearly 800 years. Um, and this painting... Um, which is in Buckingham Palace, is by the German artist uh, Franz Winterhalter, and it shows La Carva surrounded by her ladies-in-waiting. The tales of invasion and conquest involving first Roderick and then Boabdil have grown in importance in the context of existing religious tensions between Islam and the West. Major oppositions, such as those between Hispanic and Arab ethnicities, between Christian and Muslim, history and myth, are fundamental to the story of Boabdil and emphasize its lasting relevance and value inside and outside Spain. We can recognize the central and crucial role of Spain in the Middle Ages as the meeting point of Europe and the Orient, of Christianity and Islam, set against the negative medieval perception of Islam by Christians and of Christianity by Muslims. Boabdil's religion had been established as a faith for less than 100 years at the time of the Moorish conquest of Spain. Before that, when Muslims invaded the Eastern Mediterranean as early as 634 AD, just two years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, Christian chronicles described it as catastrophic, 
as the wreaking of the symbolic vengeance of God upon his sinful people. To them, the instrument of that vengeance was the Muslims, the bastard line of Abraham, as they saw it, protected by God and yet at an infinite distance from the love of Christ. So when King Roderick came to the throne of Spain in the year 710, Christian prejudice against and fear of Islam was already strong. Invasion and conquest was to become a familiar pattern in the long battle for the land of Spain and its inhabitants, and religion was the main criterion of allegiance. The Muslims wasted no time in conquering all of Spain except the northern kingdom of Asturias, and they reached beyond the harsh, snowy northern Pyrenees as far as what is now southern France in pursuit of the jihad or holy war. They were defeated in 732 by Charlemagne's grandson, Charles Martel, at Poitiers, which put an end to their expansion north and to the prospect of what would have been a very different Europe under Muslim rule. And this map shows uh, the green area um, was the extent of Muslim territory by the year 756. The majority of Muslims soon settled in the area of the south of Spain, known as Al-Andalus, modern-day Andalusia. In that year, 756, a dramatic event took place that sparked nearly two centuries of brilliant cultural and social development, which left the rest of Europe far behind. A member of the ruling Umayyad family in Damascus, Abd al-Rahman, fled to Spain to escape the massacre of his family by the rival Abbasid dynasty, and he proclaimed himself emir, or temporal Muslim ruler, with his capital at Cordoba. The exiled emir encouraged a firm Islamic orientation in every facet of life. Schools were built, the construction of the great mosque began, literature flourished, and a famous law school was established. But the glory of the Umayyad dynasty in Spain didn't last. It declined as rapidly as it rose, mainly because its power became too centralized and it finally collapsed in 1031. Now, the slide uh, shows an outline of what happened next. Al-Andalus fragmented into 20 small states known as Taifa kingdoms from the Arabic word for a group or party. Whilst these small kingdoms weakened themselves with internal squabbles and conflicts, two powerful enemies were gathering on their frontiers. In the north, the Christians' desire to regain what they saw as their native land manifested itself in the conception of a so-called reconquest, a crusade encouraged by the Pope to recuperate the territories that were perceived as lost to Islam after 711. Christian medieval writers at this time devoted a great deal of energy to building oppositions between themselves and the Muslims with whom they shared the peninsula and onto whom they projected an image of alienness. While in the south, a fearful threat from North Africa was looming. The 12th century Muslims of Al-Andalus were overrun by two separate groups of fanatical religious zealots and reformers from the North African coast, the Almoravids and the Almohads. The Almoravids arrived in 1090, bringing a strange combination of puritanical, mystical warfare and practical, uh, practical warfare. And by 1106, they'd occupied all the important cities of Al-Andalus. In a bizarre twist, they quickly succumbed to the wealth and glitter of court life and to the steadily growing strength of the Christian reconquerors. They were finally ousted in 1145. And shortly after, the inhabitants took 
a second battering, this time from the Almohads, another group of religiously intolerant anti-secular extremists who had captured most of the cities of Al-Andalus by 1172. But in 1212, they were decisively defeated by the Castilian Christian army at a famous battle at Las Navas de Tolosa. With the momentum of victory behind them, the Castilians and Aragonese swept southwards. And by 1248, Al-Andalus had lost almost all its major cities, including Cordoba and Seville, to the Christians. Spain's history had reached a critical moment. Muslim power was waning, and the progress of the Christian reconquest seemed unstoppable. It looked very much as if Islamic life in the peninsula was about to founder, when a surprising thing happened. Against all the odds, a new Muslim dynasty was founded in the small town of Arjona near Jaén. In 1232, as he left the mosque after Friday prayers, a local chief named Muhammad ibn Nasr ibn al-Akhmar, the Red, proclaimed himself ruler of the surrounding area. And there is a statue of Muhammad ibn Nasr in, in Arjona. Just five years later, in 1237, the city of Granada became his capital and the Nasrid dynasty was born, its identity taken from the new chief's resonant name of Nasser, meaning victory. This daring leader proclaimed himself emir, taking the title of Muhammad I, and he created a dynastic line which ruled for over 250 years until that fateful day in 1492 when Boabdil relinquished his city. If we follow the Nasrid dynasty from those beginnings up to the birth of Sultan Boabdil, we find a history beset by intense confusion, conflict, betrayal, and murder, all of which had a direct bearing upon the circumstances of his reign and set the tone for the climactic events leading up to the fall of Granada. It was amid just such a climate of conflict and brutality that Boabdil was born in the Alhambra Palace, sometime between 1459 and 1462, under the rule of his grandfather, Saad, he entered a world in which his future would be affected by factors prevailing in the history of his kingdom from the outset. For a start, there was the issue of Muslim vassalage to the Christians, whose power and weaponry were increasingly strong. Also, the political power of the Muslim scholars of religious law, the ulama, the warring clans, betrayals, violent death, and the intense and prolonged discord at the heart of the royal family would all play an important part in his reign. Despite this, from its foundation in 1237 to the time of Sultan Saad, the Kingdom of Granada had developed into a state with many of the characteristics of a modern European nation. The living side by side of three religious communities known as convivencia, which had been such an important feature of Islamic Spain in earlier centuries, was completely absent from the Kingdom of Granada until 1492. Its society was bonded not by a tribe, but by a single religion, Islam, by a single universal language, Arabic, and by a sense of the deep differences between the Granadan people and the other beyond its frontier, a people who spoke a Romance language, Castilian, and who also had a single religion, Christianity. Turning now, then, to Boabdil's life, it had two important areas of focus, Firstly, his relationship with his family, and second, his intersection with the Christians. 
Um, so this slide lists his main family members whom I'm going to tell you about. <clears throat> there are no sources which, uh, which tell us the details of Boabdil's early life, but we can work out certain things from later historical accounts, written mostly, but not exclusively, uh, by Christian historians. We know that he grew up surrounded by the beauty and, pro and protection of the great palace and fortress of the Alhambra. He was given an Islamic education at the Madrasa inside the Alhambra city and learned the skills of hunting and fighting, and he also became a superb horseman. But what might have been an idyllic childhood growing up with his brother Yusuf and sister Aisha was overshadowed by the climate of fear and danger inside the citadel. One night in 1464, Boabdil's grandfather, Saad, was overthrown by his own son, Abul Hassan, Boabdil's father, who had a warlike, cruel nature and a weakness for sensual indulgence. I think he must have seemed a very frightening man to his children. Following the lead of the ulama, he adopted a persistently militant attitude towards the Christian enemy, always favouring fighting over diplomacy. He was known to them as Moulay Athen, Moulay being the Castilian version of the Arab term, my lord, and Athen, the Christian version of his own name, Hassan. His unshakable defiance of the Christians is clear, and he's reputed to have refused to pay a tribute to the Castilian queen, Isabella, because, he claimed, the places in Granada where coins were minted were forging lance heads to make war rather than pay the tribute uh, which denoted subservience. His lustful nature had far-reaching consequences for his family, for Boabdil in particular, and for his kingdom. Abul Hassan's legitimate wife, Aisha, was an important and powerful Nazarite princess, said to have been descended in a direct line from the Prophet Muhammad. She was also the widow of Sultan Muhammad X, who'd been executed uh, by Abul Hassan on the orders of his father, Saad. So Abul Hassan and Aisha were two very strong personalities, and while they shared personal interests, things went well between them. But harmony turned into hatred when another woman came into Abul Hassan's life. Enchanted by the beauty of a young Christian captive, Isabel de Solis, known as Thoraya, he took her as his queen and never had anything more to do with Aisha. Abul Hassan and Thoraya's two young sons, Saad and Nasser, posed a severe threat to Boabdil's accession to the Nazareth throne, but Aisha had a very important card up her sleeve. Her status as a Nazareth princess meant that she was in a privileged position by virtue of her kinship through blood relationship down the female line, which had existed among the Nazareths since the 14th century. Through this connection, women of royal blood could transmit rights of the throne, rights which she exercised as mother of the next true Nazareth sultan. Aisha was determined that her eldest son should inherit the throne, and her power and dominant character made her a protagonist in many political events, in particular in relation to her son, Boabdil. In this complex web of family relationships between Abul Hassan, Aisha, Soraya, and Boabdil, another family member, Abul Hassan's valiant, warlike, and ambitious brother, Mohammed El Fagal, also played a significant part in later events. In 1482, amid these family crises, Boabdil married Moraima, the daughter of the governor of the town of Loja, 
and soon they had a daughter, Aisha, and later two sons, Ahmed and Yusuf. The future Moorish king, now a husband and father, lived with his new family as well as his brother, sister and mother in the close-knit community of the Alhambra, in the court of the lions, under the shadow of his father's licentious lifestyle and increasingly severe rule. And there you can see the court of the lions, which I expect uh, is familiar to some of you. At 22 years old, Boabdil was caught between love for and loyalty to his mother, siblings, and his own wife and children, and fear of his father and uncle. Between his fondness for learning and fine verse, and a growing ambition to reign, which obliged him to act as a military man and leader. We can see that these circumstances relating to Boabdil's lineage um, and early life conspired to shape his destiny. In the middle of July, 1482, things reached a tipping point and a new drama was set to be played out on the political stage of Granada. In mortal danger because of the impetuous temper of his father and the ill feeling between their mother and Thoraya, Boabdil and his younger brother Yusuf fled from the Alhambra sometime early in 1482. Um, and here we can see a picture of the window uh, they escaped from using uh, knotted sheets. Safe in the town of Guadix, some 35 miles away, they rallied their supporters, who conceived a dramatic plot to oust the reigning sultan and replace him with his son. Taking advantage of Abu Hassan's absence from the Alhambra while he was away fighting, Boabdil and his entourage entered Granada, where he was proclaimed Sultan Mohammed XI on the 15th of July, 1482, adopting the honorary title Conqueror by the Grace of God, Al-Ghalib Billah, one of the Nazarene mottos inscribed on the walls throughout the Alhambra. And there you can see the motto uh, on the Nazarene shield in the Alhambra. The major concern of Boabdil's life up to the time he became Sultan had been the inner discord in Granada and in his own family. But the Christian threat on and beyond the frontier that lurked constantly in the background began to come to the fore. The Granada campaign now started in earnest. Three years before, in 1479, the warrior Pope, Julius II, had issued a crusading bull calling for war against Granada. This chilling order from the head of the Catholic Church was repeated in 1472, reinforcing the ingrained idea that war against the Moors was part of the culture of the Catholic ruling classes of late medieval Spain. In this political chess game, played by Muslims and Christians, as well as contending with internal conflicts, Boabdil had to confront the growing threat from the mighty army of King Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile, known as the Catholic Monarchs. As they saw it, the Kingdom of Granada was the final bastion of Islam, whose reconquest would lead to the end of 700 years of Muslim presence in the peninsula. And there are um, two contemporary portraits of Ferdinand and Isabella, looking lovely. <laughs> the, the first crucial moment in the young sultan's fight to defend his kingdom against the Christians came at the Battle of Lucena in 1483. Um, and on this map, uh, you can see Lucena uh, just in the blue area <coughs> where the red arrows are pointing in the middle. Boabdil took a large army of men deep into Christian territory to raid the town of Lucena and destroy its wheat fields and vines in retaliation for King Ferdinand's destruction of crops 
in the great fertile plain surrounding Granada, known as the Vega. Tricked into thinking they were up against a mighty Christian army, the Muslims fled across a stream where Boabdil's horse sank in the mud and was trapped, and the Sultan was captured. On this disastrous day for the Muslims, when many of the principal members of the Najrid court and over a thousand troops were said to have died, Boabdil's clothes and weapons were given away as booty to his captors. These items still exist and are kept today in the Army Museum in Toledo, um, and they give us a good idea of his appearance. Um, so we can see uh, his, his marlotta, his jacket, um, and boots on the left, and his sword. Um, and we can, I think, also appreciate that uh, he was not a tall man from this, but actually perhaps of average height for his time. He was imprisoned in the castle of Porcuna, um, in that tower, to await Ferdinand's pleasure, who wanted time to consult his royal council on how to play this ace that had fallen into his hands. Boabdil's mother sent messengers who begged him to free her son and return him to his kingdom. Their logic was that if he remained captive, the Christians would receive no tribute money. They said that if Ferdinand released him, they'd offer Boabdil as vassal of the Christian king, who'd receive 12,000 gold doubloons a year, which was a lot of money then, as well as 300 Christian captives held in Muslim territory, provided, they said, a truce was agreed. As security, they promised to give one of the emir's legitimate sons, Ahmed, as a hostage. Boabdil's fate was hotly debated by the royal councillors, who couldn't decide on the best course of action. So in the end, Ferdinand asked Isabella to make the final decision. And she chose to release Boabdil, but under severe conditions, which did uh, include taking his tiny son, Ahmed, as hostage. The sultan would become the vassal of the Catholic kings, obey their orders, and basically come whenever they called him. In spite of the superficially friendly relations that existed between Boabdil and his nemesis Ferdinand, it's obvious that the latter had every intention of using him to worsen the internal divisions in the Nazred camp. In a letter written to his sister Juana, the Queen of Naples, in August 1483, just a few days after he'd seen the captured sultan, Ferdinand told her that it had been decided to release him because his own objective was, and I quote, to create such division in the Kingdom of Granada that it would bring about its complete and utter ruin. Boabdil found himself between a rock and a hard place. He was obliged to comply with the wishes of the Catholic monarchs who'd taken his son hostage. But in doing so, he aroused the hostility of the Granadan people, who saw him as a betrayer. At the same time, he was also being threatened by his ambitious uncle, El Fagal, who'd also had Boabdil's younger brother, Yusuf, brutally murdered in Almeria. So, over a period of five years, between 1484 and 89, the Sultan's fortunes waxed and waned as he was recaptured at the Battle of Loja, released again, and put in ever more compromising situations by the Christians as their yearly campaigns of attack pushed Boabdil and his people to breaking point, leaving them isolated in Granada, a city desperately fighting for survival. From 1490 to 91, Boabdil played a dangerous game of procrastination. He refused to be the tool of Castilian political policy any longer and became a resourceful rebel, unwilling to relinquish power in a bitter struggle to the end. We can see an example of this when, early in 1490, Boabdil received a message from Ferdinand and Isabella 
which horrified him. We can deduce, we haven't got the message, but we can deduce it was along the lines that the Muslims must surrender their arms and the city of Granada at once, which broke the pact of peace signed with the Christians. Now a man of 30 who knew his own mind, Boabdil was no longer the inexperienced young sultan of 1482. He'd been betrayed, imprisoned, maligned, and his son was still held hostage by the Christians. The new demand must have seemed one betrayal too many. He sent his messengers to negotiate, and they returned very unhappy, confirming that the Christians had no intention of keeping their word over what had already been agreed twice with the sultan. So the news got out, and the city was in an uproar, and the stage was set once again for war. But Boabdil was in no mood to hand over his kingdom. Granada was still formidable because of its position and defences, shielded to the east by the great mountain range of the Sierra Nevada, which you, we can see here, and encircled by massive towers and walls of great strength and solidity facing the Vega. The Sultan had a change of heart, and he abandoned the dangerous political game he'd been playing for years. He began to rebuild his kingdom with modest victories, perhaps hoping to open links from Granada to the outside world. But by 1491, the writing was on the wall. Granada lived in fear and hardship, while frantic secret negotiations went on behind the scenes. The Christian army remained within striking distance of the city during the summer, and Ferdinand made a bold decision. Suspecting they might well be in the same position as winter approached, he ordered an entire new town, Santa Fe, to be constructed on the site of the encampment. In the autumn of 1491, the brazen presence of this town, with its estimated army of 80,000 men, was a huge psychological blow to the Granadans, as it represented the unflagging determination of the enemy to overpower them. By November, the conditions had deteriorated in the city due to food shortages. The Morisco historian Hernando de Baeza describes the heart-rending sight of Moorish women with their babies in their arms, begging in the streets for food. The suffering became so great that desperate people gathered in gangs, shouting that the Sultan must get the help of the Christians, and if he wouldn't, they would. All this reached Boabdil's ears, and he felt it deeply. He knew the score, that the end was in sight for Islamic rule in Spain. And he used all the diplomatic means in his power to secure the best possible terms for the Granadans and for his family. The terms of surrender, or capitulations as they were known, in which Boabdil sought to preserve the religious life and customs of his people, were signed by the Sultan, by Ferdinand, and by Isabella on the 25th of November, 1491. And the slide shows us that original document with their signatures. The official surrender of Granada has captured the imagination of writers and artists up to the present, initially as a moment of supreme conquest, and later because of the extreme poignancy of that day of transition and loss. The opening scene of my book, which depicts the surrender, echoes the great 19th century historical painting by Francisco Pradilla y Ortiz. This is a work with a strong political charge, as it sought to glorify a defining moment in Spanish history. And it was meant to represent the Spanish, Spanish unity and illustrate the starting point for those great future deeds done by the Catholic monarchs. It's an image of Christian supremacy, but it's hard not to detect sympathy in the depiction of Boabdil, whose figure is poignantly silhouetted against the backdrop of the Alhambra 
and the keys whose hands, city whose keys he holds in his hand and is about to relinquish. The ill-fated sultan left the city he loved for the last time. His journey gave rise to the legend of the Moor's last sigh, in which he looks back on Granada and weeps, and is reproached by his cruel mother for crying like a woman for what he couldn't defend like a man. Boabdil and his family lived in internal exile in the country estate granted them by Ferdinand and Isabella in the region of the Alpujarras for a short time. But the death of his wife soon after and strong pressure from the Christians to leave prompted him to abandon Spain. By October 1493, he'd sailed for North Africa. And mystery surrounds the date and place of, of the death of the man known as El Zogoibi, the unlucky one. Some records suggest that he may have died in Fez not long after he left Spain, while there's a counterclaim that he died in the city of Plomsen in modern-day Algeria. So, how was Boabdil's life transformed into legend? Well, in the first centuries after 1492, history and fiction merged to create an image of the Sultan which demonised him. The early legend of the Moor's last sigh and his mother's rebuke, which has become an iconic point of reference, began to mould his portrait as a man too weak and cowardly to die for his religion, a man in thrall to his forceful mother. One enormously popular historical novel, The Granadan Civil Wars, published in 1595 by a shoemaker from Murcia, Ginez Pérez de Ita, added insult to injury by attributing to Boabdil the appalling massacre of the rival Abenseragil clan actually carried out by his grandfather. Pérez de Ita based his novel on folklore as well as on historical accounts, and his aim was to glamorise the Moorish court of Granada to create a compelling tale which lionised the Abenseragis at the expense of Boabdil's reputation. His novel was part of the sentimental portrayal of the exotic Moor so popular in Spanish writing after the middle of the 16th century, when there was sufficient distance to idealise the old foe in literature, if not in life. The dramatic potential of two aspects of Boabdil's fictional portrayal, as either the weak, cowardly, even malevolent ruler, or as the tragic victim, were harnessed by early playwrights as they played out the triumph of Christian conquest and imperialism on the public stage. Um, these are the authors listed here that I will just refer to. In the great Spanish playwright Lope de Vega's late 16th century drama about the discovery of the New World, Boabdil is a minor character dwarfed by the protagonism of Ferdinand, Isabella, and Columbus himself. A century later, in John Dryden's The Conquest of Granada, a lovelorn Boabdeline dies tragically in a play which maps the conquest of Granada onto contemporary political events in England, using Boabdil's sorry plight as a warning against civil discord. So, from 1492 until the 18th century, the fall of Granada was rewritten to present Boabdil in a mostly negative light in what amounted to scornful judgments of a defeated civilization. This reinvention of historical events suggests a desire to restrain and contain the past, and it raises the unresolved question of the legitimacy of the war against Granada. The need to keep Boabdil in his place, or his perceived place, as the vanquished ruler who represented the Catholic victory over the threatening religion of Islam uncovers an anxiety 
about the validity of the Christian conquest. An anxiety, I think, all too easily understandable in the climate of extreme religious and racial tension that gripped Spain from 1492 until 1609, during which time not only did Granada fall, but all Jews were expelled from the peninsula and the majority of converted Muslims or Moriscos were also banished from the country. In the 300 years after Boabdil's surrender, fiction writers, dramatists, and opera composers, both major and minor, returned to the scene of the crime to retell the tale of victory while tacitly querying its meaning. So the figure of Boabdil, poised between fact and fiction, evolved into a romantic figure in the 19th century. His legend, with its drama of monarchy and treachery, heroism and invasion, encapsulated the spirit of the age and chimed with the vogue for all things oriental. The French writer Chateaubriand's sympathy for Boabdil's legendary tears began to change the focus to nostalgia and the pain of exile suffered by the Sultan as a tragic victim. The many interpretations of that last sigh took a hold on British romantic writers too, including Byron, uh, Lord Byron and Felicio Wiesmont, who reinvented Boabdil as a patriarchal oriental despot, or as an emasculated figure whose effeminacy and weakness are reflected in his sighs and weeping. Then, for the first time, Boabdil found a defender in the American writer Washington Irving, who saw through the demonizing legend and pointed out the injustices of the views of succeeding generations up to that time. Irving's vindication of Boabdil was so influential that the Sultan became a figure of importance for black Americans, especially in popular art, symbolizing black power and chivalry. From the mid-20th century on, Boabdil came into his own as a symbol of political resistance, vividly presented by his advocate, the French surrealist writer Louis Aragon. Several important novels written in Spain and England during the last 30 years refuted the accusations of history and set Boabdil in the spotlight as a man whose life has meaning for our modern world. One of these um, <clears throat> is Salman Rushdie's The Moor's Last Sigh, which uh, many of you will know. Fascinated by Boabdil's predicament, Rushdie depicts 1940s Bombay as destroyed by fanaticism and corruption like Granada. Contemporary Arab writers and artists <clears throat> excuse me, have also found a rich source of inspiration in Boabdil as a kindred spirit who is the embodiment of exile set against Granada as the site of their own nostalgia for their homeland. Television, too, has brought the light of this medieval monarch into sharp focus as a major character in two popular Spanish TV series, Isabel and Requiem por Granada. And the old issue of the political legitimacy of Spain's rulers is raised in these productions, which beg the question of whether Spain was a better place after Boabdil surrendered his city. So why is Boabdil important to us today, and what was the nature of his last stand? We've seen some of the paradoxes and conflicts at, heart, uh, at the heart of his position as a king, emir, sultan, uh, but also as a prisoner in chains held by the Christians, as a shrewd negotiator as well as a schemer and rebel, as a son, father, husband, and brother. Boabdil was a man of culture and a man of war, a man of destiny, with the die cast for the fate of Granada long before he came to power. He was a king, yet for a time the pawn of the Catholic monarchs who assailed his castles and fortresses with their militant bishops. 
But true to the myth of the last stand, Boabdil emerges as a brave and intelligent man, leading his diminished band against an unbeatable enemy, with the odds stacked overwhelmingly against him. It's an image that flies in the face of the judgments of conventional history. And one of my aims in, in my book has been to rescue Boabdil's reputation. And that reputation hinges on the vexed issue of how Spain's medieval legacy continues to be perceived. On the 2nd of January every year, the people of Granada celebrate the moment of Boabdil's surrender uh, in the, uh, the festival commemorating the capture of their city by Ferdinand and Isabella, known as the Fiesta de la Toma. Each year, a procession of civic dignitaries proclaims the Christian victory, hoisting the royal standard and Ferdinand's sword to the strains of the national anthem. But since the 1990s, the fiesta has been opposed by left-wing intellectuals and artists, including Yehudi Menuhin and Amin Malouf, on the grounds that it's xenophobic and inappropriate. The fiesta seems to reinforce the Christian status of the city, a status, of course, it never had before 1492, but it also reveals a continuing anxiety about its religious and cultural identity. The repeated reenactment of Christian victory over Muslim counterparts, and in particular of their triumph in Granada, suggests the underlying insecurity over the racial and religious issues at the heart of Spain's cultural history. Boabdil is at once the invading other and the conquered enemy. He's the feared yet desired Muslim presence who epitomizes the conflicted nature of Spain's relationship with its past and embodies the enduring quandary over Spain's cultural distinctiveness. Boabdil is the scapegoat who takes the full brunt of the historical act of revenge of the Christian reconquest and whose reputation is sacrificed to atone for the inner corruption of the Muslim state on one hand and to represent the Christian conquest of Islamic civilization in Spain on the other. So in almost exactly the same place in Granada where Boabdil handed the keys of his city to Ferdinand, a pair of life-sized bronze statues stand in a flower bed in a small graveled park surrounded by towering blocks of flats. And it's well off the beaten tourist track close to a large modern conference center. And it bears no indication of who the statues represent. But their out-of-the-way location and understated tribute belie the historical importance of their subject. So among roses and pomegranate trees, a bearded man wearing a turban sits on a throne looking down sadly at a young woman, her head lowered in humility as she offers him a rose. This poignant monument, sculpted by the Madrid artist Juan Moreno Aguado, was unveiled on the 2nd of January 1997 as a memorial to the last Moorish sultan in Spain. The young woman represents Granada, who offers Boabdil a rose as a symbol of love and in hope of forgiveness. Its message of reconciliation marks, I think, a special moment in the development of the perception of Boabdil. Deprecated in the past as a cowardly traitor or tragic victim, he's become a potent symbol of the forces of rebellion and an unconventional yet modern hero in his own right. Some of the current tensions between Islam and the West have their roots in his reign and the kingdom he lost, a calamity which has been seen as the prelude to the repression of the Muslim world. Europe is increasingly concerned about how to address issues of racial equality, religious freedom, and racial and religious intolerance. 
And some of these problems were tackled successfully in the Spanish Muslim society, of which Boabdil was the final heir. And the cultural appropriation and physical expulsion of that society has left a scar on the Muslim psyche. Boabdil's last stand was a personal battle to defend his right to rule his kingdom as its legitimate sultan. It was also a last stand against religious intolerance, fanatical power and cultural misunderstanding, in which issues of violence, tension and prejudice between Muslims and Christians were as pressing then as they are now. The life and legend of Boabdil exposes how what was gained by the Christian conquest of Granada, which heralded the new nation state and the rise of Spanish imperialism, may well have been outweighed by the defeat of Muslim civilization in Spain, with all its consequences for the future of relations between the Islamic State and the West. And thank you for listening. So I believe if anyone would like to ask me a question now, um, I'd be glad to ask, try and ask them anyway. Hello, thank you for the reading. Of, oh, thank you. How, how does one, uh, when, when writing about an, a, a historical event, how does one balance between, strike the balance between history and fiction? How, how do you manage to strike the balance between history and fiction? Thank you. Yes, thank you. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think the answer to that probably is, um, that certainly the basis of, of my book has been the original historical resources, sources, which I've gone back to, um, both a couple of Arabic ones and Christian ones written around the time that Boabdil lived. Um, so I think that that has to be the fundamental basis for any kind of um, evaluation or revision or, or, or historical uh, view. However, um, there's no doubt that fiction um, has played a, a very important role in moulding the image uh, of this sultan. Um, so I've tried also to take that into account, but, but first and foremost, I have tried to take the, the historical sources um, into account um, as, as my primary um, aim. Hi, thanks very much. Um, you mentioned this point about the last sigh. Um, I just wonder, is there much in terms of historical background to that, this, his relationship with his mother? Uh, <laughs> um, Yes, several of the historical sources do um, allude to the fact that she was a very dominant, powerful woman. Um, so it may be that she had, I don't know, um, a lot of control over him. Um, there's no actual definite source for the legend of the Psy. Um, it first appears, I think, um, in, in a letter uh, written about a Spanish ballad. This is before the, the shoemaker from Murcia uh, got onto the whole idea of Boabdil and his last sigh. So um, we, we don't have anything exact to go on, um, but I suppose it might not be unlikely. She was, she was a, a ferocious woman who wanted 
who felt that Muslims should fight to the death rather than follow the path of, of peace and negotiation, which is what Boabdil wanted to do all the time. So, so there may well be something in it, yes. Hello. Um, you mentioned that Julius II, the warrior pope, had made various proclamations. Yes. Um, and you also mentioned just then that Boabdil's mother felt the duty of um, a Muslim was to fight to the death. Was there mm. any <coughs> similar pan-Islamic support for Boabdil or any support from his North African neighbors? Or did they still feel that the Spanish Arabic Islamic culture was decadent and beyond help from them, as it were? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. Um, Boabdil tried on um, a number of occasions to get the support <coughs> of the North African rulers, um, the Sultan of Fez um, and the Sultan of Tunis. Um, and they always were very willing in principle to support him. But the problem with that was that they, they had all got involved themselves in various um, wars, uh, internecine wars, and they couldn't afford uh, any manpower. So, in fact, he didn't ever get any help. Um, but, but I don't think they were, would have been averse to helping him if they'd been able to, certainly. Yeah. Um, when you said you think that um, Boabdil left a kind of scar on the Islamic psyche, what evidence is there for that in Arabic scholarship now? And do you think, in any sense, he has symbolic significance for ISIS? Um, well, there is evidence. Um, a number of uh, Syrian poets, um, born in Damascus, contemporary Syrian poets, um, refer to uh, the loss of Granada and Boabdil's um, demise um, as something they feel is very unjust, and they hark back to it. Um, it's part of the... Uh, they feel that, that, that Muslims were exiled from their homeland. Uh, and they feel that that um, is analogous with the situation that, that Syria finds itself in now. So there's certainly, from that point of view, there is a looking back um, with longing to what, what they feel was a terrible historical loss. Um, at the time, just or shortly after the Muslim fall of, of Granada, again, um, various elegies and laments were written in Arabic uh, to the same effect, that this was a terrible and devastating loss for Islam. Um, and in terms of the last part of your question, um, I don't know whether ISIS has ever referred to it, but I know for a fact that Al-Qaeda has referred to it um, as uh, a score that they still wanted to settle. Um, and um, unfortunately, when Madrid suffered its terrible bombing in 2004, train bombing, a terrorist attack, um, Al-Qaeda quoted uh, the loss of Granada um, as, as one of the reasons why uh, they carried out that terrible attack. Um, and it was also picked up by the Spanish Prime Minister at the time, who referred to it on a number of occasions. So I think there is quite a lot of good evidence uh, to show that that, that is a, a quite a current view. Do you know what happened to that young son who was held hostage? Uh, thank you. Oh, yes. Well, as far as we know, he went uh, with his father to North Africa. He was exiled. He went on the same boat that took, uh, took his father and, and the other members of his family, except Boabdil's sister, who stayed in Spain and married a Christian. 
Um, but the rest of his family, including his mother, all went uh, on, one, on one voyage over to North Africa. So he was saved in the end. But I think it must have been, um, played a very big part in, in, in uh, Sultan Bayadur's attitude to, to the Christians, you know, wanting to keep them, keep them sweet because he, he was frightened they would, they would harm his son. Um, I was just wondering if um, the defeat of Boabdil was known about in England and what was the reaction here? Because there was quite a strong relationship <coughs> with Spain at the time. Yes. Um, that's a good question, actually. Uh, as far as I know, <coughs> um, there was great jubilation. Sorry, I can't see you very well because of the lights. There was great jubilation in most of Europe, including in London, um, at the Christian conquest. Um, they was, I think the bells of St. Paul's Cathedral were rung, or certainly the bells, certainly the bells in London rang. Um, Italy greatly supported it. Um, so I think overall there was a general <coughs> feeling that this was the symbol of a great <coughs> Christian victory. Um, it's interesting, though, that um, there's one Italian historian called Peter Marta. He was an Italian historian who wrote on Spain, and he writes almost um, contemporaneously with these events. Um, and he does lament uh, the fall of Granada, and he does describe Boabdil as, as um, uh, a great man who, who was brought down. So that's an interesting alternative perspective from, from his time. How, how much did... Um, the normal populace of, of the Iberian Peninsula be affected by um, first the Moors conquering and then and then the reconquest. Was it uh, just changing who you paid the, the dues to, or, or was it you know were people pressed into converting and changing religions? Um, yes, that's a good question. It was something which varied from obviously over the period of, of nearly 800 years. Um, the Muslims never, never forced uh, any Christians or Jews to convert to Islam, but they did demand them to pay taxes. They allowed them to continue practicing their own religion, um, but at a, at a price, if you like. Um, but, but there wasn't um, the kind of forced conversion that happened after 1492 of, of Jews and Muslims by, by uh, Catholics. Um, and I think that, well, yes, in varying degrees, most of the population would have been significantly affected um, by the interaction with, with these different communities. Um, it would have affected their, their general way of life, their celebrations, their, the very food they ate. I think it would have, it would have um, had an impact on them in, in lots of different ways. Yes. How did the Spanish civilization compare with what had gone before. I mean, they were so advanced, weren't they? The Moors in medicine and yes. architecture and art. Yes. Were the Spanish as advanced as that? Uh, no, they weren't at all advanced. In, in fact, um, they were really quite backward. They had some, some writers, Christian writers, Saint Isidore of Seville um, in, in the early medieval period. Um, and there were a number um, of Castilian Christian writers um, who were important, um, but nothing, they had nothing like the general sophistication of cultural level of, of, of the Moors at all. Um, they, they were very behind, as was, as was London, of course, as well, in, 
you know, London had um, streets made out of mud and, and no light street lights and no sewers at a time when, when Cordoba had, <coughs> had all those things. So, so I think from the point of view of everyday uh, living, um, the Spaniards were quite backward. And of course, one of the big things that, um, that the Muslims brought with them was uh, wonderful agricultural techniques and irrig irrigation techniques, which allowed um, the whole country really, but particularly the south of Spain to benefit from, um, from that to grow different crops. Um, so, so generally they were, they were quite a lot behind, I would say. for two. Um, what, it, contem uh, contemporary Spain, does it regard the Moorish period as contributing to what Spain is today? And, and does that mean it has a something to say about how uh, peoples interact and the influence? That's a really important question. Um, well, there's a big uh, debate going on in Spain at the moment. Um, precisely about the, the issues I've been talking about today. Whereas, um, in which one group of, of, of people, a lot of left-wing academics and other academics, um, are very keen to, um, to embrace the whole idea of, of Spain's Islamic heritage, um, which they see as a way of um, symbolizing <coughs> uh, Islamic tolerance of Islam. They believe that uh, Islam was an important part of Spanish uh, cultural life uh, as it continues to be today and they're looking at it um, uh, from the point of view of wanting to um, a point of view of reconciliation shall we say and there's another group which is very very opposed to that which wants to effectively um, I suppose deny the Islamic heritage of Spain um, and uh, which insists that Spain had an entirely European Christian Latin Heritage. So um, it's a great question because it's a, it's a really hot debate at the moment and, uh, and it's an ongoing thing. Hi, I got slightly confused. Um, what happened to Bardil's father and the dastardly uncle? Oh, um, his father... Uh, Fell, had a seizure. He had a kind of illness, uh, it turned out, uh, associated with epilepsy, like epilepsy. And eventually in 1484 to 5, he had a seizure um, and wasn't able to reign anymore. And he eventually died later that year, at which time his, his brother, El Fagal, um, used the opportunity to take over certain parts of the Granadan kingdom, which is when he had one of Boabdil's brothers executed in Almeria because he ruled Almeria. And for quite a long time, there was a big... Um, I didn't, didn't go into this detail, because I, I didn't have, have any time, but there was a big um, um, conflict between Boabdil and his uncle. Uh, and eventually, his uncle, El Fagal, uh, fled and escaped to North Africa before, before the end, before Granada fell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Rosie. Thank you.